Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include national versus regional markets, my interview with Polensky Vital Greens, Peter Idziak on FHFA's rescission of DTIL LPAs and how the pricing framework evolves from here, and how much should we listen to what the Fed says? I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Richie May. Richie May is a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services to the mortgage industry for almost four decades. Among many awards, Richie May has been named a top 100 firm twice and is known in the market for their education and contributions to the mortgage industry. They don't just hire from the mortgage industry, they have the experts who build it. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit richiemay.com. Well, Academy Mortgage is in the headlines again about its data breach and ransomware, from which no company seems immune. Remember that in a democracy, it's your vote that counts. In feudalism, it's your count that votes. <laughs> Setting mortgage rates isn't a voting matter, but would you like your voice heard on how Fannie and Freddie price loans? Here's your chance, as FHFA is asking for input. More on that in one second. It's one thing for FHFA or a presidential administration to spell out lending and housing goals. Translating those down the food chain into state, county, and local action is a whole other thing. The same goes with statistics. Every month, dozens of housing stats come out. We can talk about existing home sales, new home sales, FHFA price index, and on and on. But if a loan officer or real estate agent is focused on a certain area, national stats mean little to them. As home prices and bidding wars vary throughout the U.S., real estate experts suggest that the national housing market no longer reflects local and regional markets. But location matters now more than ever. For more on FHFA's rescission of DTI LLPAs, I wanted to bring on Polinsky Vital Greens, Peter Idziak, to talk about that and how the pricing framework evolves from here. He's representing clients in all areas of residential mortgage lending, and lenders regularly call him for advice on regulatory matters and compliance issues concerning all aspects of consumer lending and real property law. His experience advising lenders on federal and state consumer financial laws and regulations spans several statutes including the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, Truth and Lending Act, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, Fair Credit Reporting Act, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, and the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. He also routinely advises clients on Veterans Administration, Federal Housing Administration, and government-sponsored enterprise requirements. And I wanted to make one quick note that after last week's rescission of its DTI LLPA plan, FHFA did release a new request for input, seeking input until August 14th on their pricing framework. That link can be found on robchrisman.com. I, I want to go back a little bit and start by saying, can you give us an overview of the DTI loan level price adjustments that FHFA had announced and, and kind of the effect that they would have? Sure. So um, I think a, a little background on LLPAs as well for anyone who might not be familiar with it. So uh, LLPA stands for Loan Level Pricing Adjustment, and for Fannie and Freddie, they were introduced in 2008 in the wake of the Great Financial Crisis as a way to recapitalize the GSEs and protect taxpayers against further bailouts. So historically, they've been based on a borrower's credit score, the loan-to-value ratio, property type, occupancy, loan purpose, um, and the different pricing bands have been tied to the anticipated riskiness of the loan. Um, but over the past year or so, FHFA has announced several adjustments to the LLPA matrix that, um, although they do address these safety and soundness issues, 
They're also clearly designed to advance the policy goal of increasing home ownership and supporting underserved borrowers. So some of the most recent changes, um, one of which announced in January, was the DTI LLPA. So this was a, a new loan level pricing adjustment for um, loans where the borrower's debt to income ratio was uh, was above 40 percent. And that was something that um, had historically never been subject to a pricing adjustment. So the goal of that uh, is a little unclear because FHFA didn't announce specifically why they were introducing the DTI LLPA. You know what's funny to me about all this, not funny, it's sad, is for somebody who's bumping up against DTI limits, for them to get that much worse of a rate uh, on their loan, it's going to make their their likelihood of repaying that much less likely. So it's like a, a double whammy in a sense. Uh, and obviously, lenders and originators went went to bat here uh, and let the FHFA know their displeasure. What was the reaction amongst lenders and, and how that ultimately lead to the subsequent rescission? Uh, you know, I, I think it was uh, it was it was strong, uniform, and uniformly negative. Uh, I know. I think within the first week, uh, probably even the first days, that it was announced that uh, the National Association of Realtors, the Mortgage Bankers Association, the Community Home Lenders Association, the ABA, and I'm sure there were others issued press releases and uh, sent letters to FHFA um, objecting to uh, some of the LLPA changes, including the DTI LLPA change. The, one of the major criticisms that was leveled was that it's simply unworkable. Um, from an underwriting process, DTI is a fluid and dynamic number that is calculated by the underwriter. It can change multiple times over the course of the loan as income is verified or unable to be verified as you know debts are uh, discovered or paid down. So from a pricing standpoint, it creates a, you know, a, less uh, attractive borrower experience because you can get as a borrower close to closing and it turns out that you know the debt went up or your income over the last month went down and all of a sudden you're exceeding that 40% DTI and you get hit with you know a higher interest rate or an additional uh, you know points and fees so i had received a note from your pr firm with some commentary on this and and you had said that it's indicative of FHFA not fully understanding or appreciating the challenges facing mortgage lenders. Why do you feel that way about the whole process here? I think there's there's two reasons. First, just the, the timing of these adjustments. You know, they were uh, initially intended to be effective May 1st um, or for loans purchased on or after May 1st. And then, you know, the DTI LPA was at least initially delayed until August, but this is the height of the spring buying season. And this is a very important season this year with uh, the industry coming off of, you know, very kind of dark and cold winter. So to increase the cost to many of your borrowers in an environment where volume is already down a lot seems to be a little, I don't know, tone deaf or not concerned about the viability of a lender's business model. You know, I think there's data that shows that IMBs lost money on every loan they made uh, last quarter uh, on average. And this sort of seems to just you know add to the negative rate environment. Beyond that, you know, lenders and their employees, like loan officers, they're very much about working with borrowers and trying to help borrowers understand a complicated process. 
a DTI LLPA is difficult to explain to borrowers. You know, as you had mentioned, it can create some uh, perverse incentives to borrowers to try and avoid this 40% uh, hit on the DTI. So, you know, some examples were um, uh, you have a borrower with a small emergency fund, but they have some outstanding debt that they're able to service. Well, they're over the 40% DTI. You know, are they going to have to, or should they be sort of forced to use that emergency fund to pay down some debt so that they avoid a, a pricing hit? Or you have a borrower that, that, you know, just wants a higher interest rate, doesn't want to pay points because they think points aren't going to work for them. They're going to refinance in a year or two as they expect rates to decrease. Well, you know, that higher interest rate pushes them over the 40% DTI, they take a pricing hit. And so they lose some of the advantage of that. Beyond that, it's just the simple fact that, you know, there's a compliance issue at stake here that you receive income information from the borrower. It takes time for an underwriter to calculate it. And you do have disclosure and tolerance issues that could come into play. And that the operational issues was something that lenders struggled with, you know, right off the get go. And uh, what I sort of criticize is even in the announcement extending the deadline or the implementation of the DTI LPA, the FHFA basically just said, well, we're giving you more time to figure out how to how to make this work. But FHFA offered no guidance, no suggestions, you know, nothing either directly or through Fannie or Freddie about, you know, to assist a lender in making this work. So it's sort of, we created this LLPA. We're not sure how it works. Lenders, you figure it out. Fortunately, FHFA has received the message loud and clear at this point, and, and hopefully it alters their uh, rulemaking processes or the ways they roll it out in the future. But you had said, and, and obviously it's well known, FHFA's mission is to promote home ownership. So I'd say from FHFA's perspective, why would it enact policies that could negatively affect borrowers and the borrower experience in obtaining a loan? Well, you know, and, and this is, uh, I obviously don't speak for FHFA and I have no particular insight into their thinking on this. And part of the reason I have no particular insight into their thinking is that they didn't really explain their thinking. Um, but I do think that there are sort of two goals that FHFA has that can be intention. The first is that they are a safety and soundness regulator, and they are mandated under the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, which created the agency, you know, to secure the safety and soundness of Fannie, Freddie, and the federal home loan banks. So loan level pricing adjustments and the upfront guarantee fees are one of their key tools to ensure that Fannie and Freddie are appropriately capitalized. So to the extent that you have LLPAs that maybe do not adequately protect the GSEs against the losses for loans with certain characteristics, Sure, they need to be changed. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, Robbie, the FHFA has a stated goal of promoting equitable access to affordable and sustainable housing. So to that end, under Director Thompson, they it has been clear that some of these adjustments are not being solely done to capitalize the GSEs, but also to, quote, you know, support borrowers historically underserved by the, the housing finance market. And and announcing these, FHFA basically stated, you know, that these LLPA adjustments are, you know, another step in the uh, to ensure that the enterprises quote advance their mission of facilitating equitable and sustainable access to ownership, home ownership. So that that's a long way of saying that I think some of these LLPAs or the elimination of some LLPAs, like we saw previously for first-time home buyers, 
are intended to promote this goal of you know, sustainable home ownership or increase um, access for underserved borrowers. But on the other hand, you still have these safety and soundness concerns. So, you know, my opinion, uh, which is sort of a, a shot in the dark here, is that after making some of these changes, FHFA looked around and said, well, you know, we do need to increase the LPA somewhere else. Well, you know, who's who's a riskier borrower? Well, obviously someone with a higher DTI. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll put an LLPA on that. Uh, what's what's really interesting about that is that a few years ago when the CFPB was um, revising the ATRQM rule, they had done a study and they had found that uh, DTI was actually a poor predictor of a borrower's ability to repay. And that, you know, granted, this was sort of a bright line uh, for many lenders, they wouldn't make non-QM loans, but that a strict DTI cutoff you know, could result and, and probably did result in fewer loans being made to underserved borrowers. So, uh, you know, ultimately you'd have to ask FHFA why they added the DTI LPA. But in my opinion, it seems that, you know, sort of trying to serve two goals that could be opposed to one another, the DTI LPA was intended to, you know, increase revenue, um, help capitalize the GSEs and offset probably some of the the revenue loss that they were seeing from lower LLPAs for other borrowers. Any other considerations you think are important? I like issues like this because I, I do, I don't want to say I have a dog in the fight, but I do have sort of my, you know, my political uh, sensitivities and the idea that you have this regulator that's making these massive changes to the U.S. housing market without noticing comment rulemaking, without, you know, issuing a big study, just a press release and some lender letters and sort of, you know, trust us. <laughs> I, I, I object to that on principle, regardless of who the political party is in power. Whenever they announced this, uh, they, FHFA and the, the GSEs were all about, you know, sustainable home ownership, increasing access to underserved borrowers. That's where we're making some of these changes. And you say, okay. And then they get a lot of criticism in late April, a lot of press reports, you know, Fox News, New York Post about the, uh, the sort of the misinterpreted, you know, uh, higher credit score borrowers are going to pay more than lower credit score borrowers now. And then so Director Thompson comes out with a statement in late April that's basically sort of, we made these changes purely out of safety and soundness concerns and due to the risk profile. And there's like no mention of, you know, increasing access to homeownership in that. And it's sort of, well, you know, which one is it? The, there were significant compliance costs for industry. You know, my clients call me help them, you know, understand this, implement policies, think about the compliance issues, you know, they get billed for that. And then it gets rescinded. So thousands and thousands of hours, you know, significant amounts of money, I'm sure spent in the industry for a policy that just never goes into effect. Is there any praise for FHFA here? Or I guess, you know, I, I had said it's good that they ultimately listened to those in the origination space and, and rescinded this. But what do you expect from uh, the agency going forward? I mean, you know, I, I I do give them praise because they did listen to the industry and they they did not have to listen to the industry. Um, it was uh, FHFA's choice to ultimately scrap the fee. And I, I give credit to a lot of the trade industries, including those in our industry, that um, that really, you know, went to bat and kept this front and center that a, a DTI LPA was unworkable. And I'm Glad to see that FHFA ultimately agreed with that. 
Um, it'll be interesting to see going forward, um, you know, how they sort of make up this lost, um, I don't want to call it revenue, but lost a recapitalization opportunity. And in uh, the statement that FHFA issued uh, announcing the rescission, uh, Director Thompson also announced that in the near future, FHFA will provide, quote, you know, additional transparency on the process for setting the GSE single family guarantee fees. And they're also going to issue uh, a request for public input on the issue. So sort of what that form of request takes and what this transparency is will be interesting to see because, you know, the, the more data that, that FHFA releases, the more you can go in there, you know, dig around and make sort of, you know, substantive arguments about why this LLPA should be higher or why it should be lower um, not the DTI issue, but you know, there's been a lot of public blowback um, from certain sectors on the uh, increase in LLPAs for borrowers with higher credit scores uh, and the decrease in LLPAs for uh, borrowers with lower credit scores. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, if FHFA releases more data, you know, is there a pure safety and soundness, you know, uh, argument there? Is it in fact true that borrowers with higher credit scores are actually a little bit riskier than we thought? And maybe they do need increased LLPAs. Or is this uh, sort of a cross subsidy where FHFA is, in order to promote its goal of sustainable home ownership, um, you know, basically kind of giving a helping hand to these lower credit uh, score borrowers, but then needs to offset that through higher LPAs for other borrowers? Very well put. Peter, I really enjoyed this discussion. I know the audience will too. And uh, thank you for making the time. Hopefully we'll have you back on soon. Uh, thanks, Robbie. It's been a pleasure. The week opened with multiple Fed officials signaling they do indeed favor pausing interest rate increases, while a third said the central bank's task in subduing inflation was not complete. Atlanta Fed President Bostich said that he doesn't see the Federal Open Market Committee cutting rates until well into 2024 even if there's a recession, and that with core inflation running over double the Fed's target rate, additional rate hikes could be warranted before year-end. New York Fed President Williams also cautioned against forecasts for rate cuts this year by saying, first of all, we haven't said we're done raising rates, we're going to make sure we're going to achieve our goals, and we're going to assess what's happening in our economy and make the decisions based on data. I do not see in my baseline forecast any reason to cut interest rates this year. End quote. These remarks come in stark contrast to Fed funds futures markets, where pricing implies up to 75 basis points of cuts prior to the start of 2024, as expectations for further easing and inflationary data were reaffirmed following April's CPI report. Prices for some core goods rose at their smallest pace since early 2001, and other components, such as spiking gasoline prices and used car prices, appear to be short-lived. Upward pressure on services inflation also appears to finally be easing, as prices for travel services for things like hotels, airfare, and car rentals declined over the month. Producer prices rose less than market expectations in April, and the number of businesses raising prices over the past three months was at a two-year low. The Fed Fund's futures market is still showing about three rate cuts by year-end, but we've got another month before the FOMC meets again. One thing we will have plenty of this week is Federal Reserve speakers, 11 in all, including Fed Chair Powell himself. With the Fed raising its main policy rate to its highest level in 16 years last week, short-term rates above 5% continue to entice investors toward money market assets. The nods from the Fed about the peak of the rate hike cycle being reached have renewed appetite for investors to seek higher rates. That means money exiting the Treasury and MBS markets, pushing the yields up. 
Some big news last week was the FDIC announcing its timetable to sell off the mortgage bonds it has taken on board from the recently failed banks. The $12 billion worth to kick off this week's auctions, which marked the start of heavy front-loaded sales of failed banks MBS, also weighed pricing down and rates up to open the week. That's in addition to those remarks from the Fed speakers I mentioned previously. And if there already wasn't enough going on, investors are waiting for clarity on whether politicians in Washington will reach a deal to avert a U.S. default, looming as early as June 1st. There's been heavy focus on the ongoing debt ceiling negotiations, with House Speaker McCarthy and President Biden scheduled to meet today. The rest of the week won't have much in the way of market-moving data, but we will get a lot of housing indicators with the NAHB Housing Market Index today, housing starts and building permits tomorrow, and existing home sales and home builder sentiment on Thursday. Today's busy calendar kicked off with retail sales from April, and that's a key economic figure as consumer spending drives about two-thirds of economic activity in this country. Those figures rebounded, rising 0.4% in April versus those expectations, uh, and excluding autos, sales rose 0.4% as expected. Later today brings Redbook same-store sales for the week ending May 13th, industrial production and capacity utilization for April, March business inventories, NAHB's housing market index for May, and remarks from no less than seven Fed speakers. We begin the day with agency MBS prices better by a few ticks, and the 10-year yielding 3.48 after closing yesterday at 3.51%. The two years at 3.98. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Although these aren't jokes, they're advice for people going to Manhattan for the secondary, which starts on Sunday. And actually, I wanted to say yesterday was incorrect about odd avenues running north to south and even avenues running south to north. I rode my bicycle down from the Upper East Side today, down 2nd Avenue, which uh, it seems like when when we, when we one goes west of Park Avenue is when the avenues run north to south uh, versus east of Park Avenue. I'm talking 3rd, 2nd, 1st. Even avenues run north to south. Anyways, when specifying how far away another location is, don't just say it's four blocks. They're short blocks and long blocks. Streets are short blocks and avenues are long blocks. It's a huge difference in time required to go four long blocks, aka from Broadway to 3rd Avenue, as opposed to four short blocks, 43rd to 47th Street. I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Richie May. Richie May is a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services to the mortgage industry for almost four decades. Among many awards, Richie May has been named a top 100 firm twice and is known in the market for their education and contributions to the mortgage industry. They don't just hire from the mortgage industry, they have the experts who build it. To experience how Richie May can help you transform your mortgage business, visit RichieMay.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at RobChrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.